You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. Corn ethanol as a renewable nationwide fuel policy is kind of insane. If you're a commercial player, you've made an investment expecting a return. That return hasn't transpired. And that is tough shit. For October 26th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. For years, certain skeptics of the energy transition have claimed that renewables don't produce enough net energy to power our society, and therefore that the project of energy transition is doomed to fail. They made this argument on the basis of some old data for the energy returned on investment, or EROI ratios, that's the energy produced from a source divided by the energy required to produce it, for various fuels. But the historical EROI literature has been plagued with methodological inconsistencies, which have only been cleared up and rectified in recent years by researchers developing formal methodologies for life cycle assessment, or LCA, as we discussed back in episode 59. Much of that literature has also focused on the EROI at the point of extraction, which is misleading because what really matters is the energy at the point where it's used, and the EROI at the point of use is much lower for certain fuels, like oil, than it is at the point of extraction. A group of researchers have recently corrected these issues by harmonizing the values found in the EROI literature and restating them at the point of use, in order to provide a true apples-to-apples basis for comparing different energy sources. What they found completely upends those old arguments against the energy transition. Not only do renewables have sufficiently high EROIs to power our society, they are much higher than the EROIs of the fossil fuels they are replacing. Altogether, these results suggest that only through the energy transition can we maintain a functioning society. Returning to the show to explain these results and what they mean is the lead researcher on the new study, Dr. David Murphy, an environmental scientist at St. Lawrence University in New York. Longtime listeners will recall that Dave first explained the concept of EROI to us way back in Episode 7. He also previously appeared on the show in Episodes 81, 100, and he taught the second module in our Energy Basics series in Episode 126. He's a terrific educator about the energy transition, and it's a pleasure to have him back on the show for a very geeky but important conversation about the state of EROI science. In addition to reviewing the results of this new paper, we'll also talk about some of the other mistaken arguments that are frequently made against the energy transition and explain why they are wrong. Then in the news segment, we'll review some of the recent data indicating a bright future for solar power. We'll check out some of the interesting new energy storage projects. We'll salute the construction of the world's second largest solar project. We'll explore several new policies and programs to accelerate the development of offshore wind in the U.S. and the U.K. And we'll note California's latest moves in its energy transition. And now, our interview with Dr. David Murphy, recorded September 30th, 2022. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Dave, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. I'm happy to be here. Good to talk again. Yeah. 
So you and your students are always researching interesting things, but I wanted to have you back on the show to discuss your latest paper on the Energy Return on Investment, or EROI, metric, which was published in June of this year. You gave our listeners an introduction to EROI way back in Episode 7, so I don't think we need to recap all of that. But maybe, just as a reminder, you could define some of the key terms for us, like EROI and net energy and point of extraction and point of use. Sure. Be happy to. So the best way to think of net energy analysis of this whole field is in terms of like energy profitability. So EROI is energy return on investment, and it's a division. So we think of the energy that's produced from an energy producing process. So like crude oil extraction, you produce a bunch of crude oil, let's call it barrels of crude oil. And of course, you have to invest a little energy to get that crude oil out of the ground. So energy return on investment is the energy you produce divided by the energy cost of that production. So you could say we produce 100 barrels of oil and we had to invest the energy equivalent of one barrel of oil, then you would get an EROI of 100 to 1. Okay. And net energy is, is very similar. It's the same E out, so energy produced, except instead of dividing it, you just subtract it. So it's net energy is energy out minus energy in. And the big difference there is simply that net energy is actually an amount of energy. So you'd measure it in joules because it's E out minus E in. So it would be like megajoules minus megajoules. Right. Whereas energy return on investment is the division. That's a ratio. Yep, exactly. It's a unitless ratio. And then point of extraction versus point of use has to do with kind of the process chain. So Originally, when we started doing energy return on investment analysis, most of it was done at the point of extraction. So for crude oil, which will probably be the easiest kind of example, and that would be at the wellhead. So how much oil is produced out of the ground? And slowly kind of where the field has gone is measuring things at the point of use. So the point of extraction being the wellhead out of the ground point of use for oil would be really actually gasoline at the gas pump. So it has to do with measuring energy return on investment at different kind of points in the life cycle of the fuel or whatever energy resource we're talking about. Gotcha. Okay. So why did you and your co-authors undertake this study? Like what was the research question you wanted to answer? Well, fundamentally, what we really wanted to answer was, can the energy transition replace the functions of fossil fuels in current society? A lot of people talk about that. How will renewable energy replace fossil fuels in modern society? But one way that it's been framed in the literature is around energy return on investment. Basically, society benefits from energy resources that provide a lot of profit, a profit energy, or a lot of net energy, or societies that have high energy return on investment. Conversely, societies that have a lower energy return on investment seem to be constrained in growth. And the easy way to think about this is actually to use an analogy and, and it's the idea of metabolism. So really, energy return on investment comes out of ecology. And you can think of predator-prey interactions. So like if a cheetah were to chase a prey, the cheetah obviously has to expend some sort of energy to catch that prey. And it's only really worth it for the cheetah if the prey provides more energy than the cheetah expends in running after it. And I think that's, that's pretty obvious. Right. And the key, right, is the cheetah, if the prey gives it more energy, the cheetah can grow and become bigger over time. And the bigger the prey, the more energy it gets. Well, society has its own kind of metabolism. Like all these buildings that we see around us, they have all this heat flowing into them or AC, depending on where you live. There's all these lights. That's the metabolism of society. That's the energy that's required just to run society. And the energy sector has to provide that to society. So 
we need fuels that are profitable. And that profit energy pays for its metabolism in society. I mean, anything above that will allow it to grow. So in that sense, low EROIs imply kind of a constrained environment, whereas a higher energy return on investment fuel will allow it to grow. So the question ultimately was like, can renewable energy kind of provide this, the same thing that fossil fuels? The problem, of course, is that the literature is kind of beset with controversy. Papers that have been published that would say that photovoltaics return three units of energy for every one invested. And then there's other papers that show it's 16 to one. Mm -hmm. And the same thing occurs for some other energy resources. So my colleagues and I have kind of been arguing for a little while in the literature to use more rigorous methodologies, to use life cycle analysis, so that we can kind of triangulate or just be more rigorous, I guess, in the way in which we do our, our EROI research so that we can have less variability in the numbers that come out for the same technology. So it's in this kind of landscape of uncertainty out there about EROIs where this paper arises. So if I could, there's like three sub points, I guess, or sub goals that we had with this. One was really to perform a literature review. It had been a long time since anybody provided like EROIs for all the major technologies, just kind of a state of the state. This is an update. This is where we are. This is where the EROIs are for all of these. The second one is to try to harmonize those values. As I was saying, there's been a lot of variability in some of the, the numbers that have come out for different technologies. And not all of it is due to like inherent technological issues. It's due to differences in the way in which the analyses have been executed. So we want to harmonize those, get those values the same so that we can compare them. And the third one was to actually provide data to, and recommendations for other people, so that for other researchers, so that if they wanted to do an EROI, they could use the data in our paper and our supplementary online to try to harmonize their own values so that they can compare them to other stuff in the literature. Okay, so you're doing this harmonization so that essentially you can make an apples to apples comparison from one energy technology to another. Exactly. And this is important because a lot of people who are skeptical about the energy transition or who are dubious about it, particularly some of the people that I've heard from in the degrowth movement, feel that EROI is sort of the smoking gun or the clear tell that renewables cannot power civilization, that the energy transition can't succeed. And they use that argument to say, this is why we have to have degrowth, or this is why capitalism has to fail, or whatever their argument may be, because they believe that this EROI issue for renewables is a killer problem. They think that EROI is just too low for renewable energy technologies. Exactly. Yep. Okay, great. So let's talk about the results of this new study, because it shows that the EROI of renewables is high enough to sustain continued investment in them. And again, this is important because of this very vocal group of observers who have for years claimed that the EROI of renewables is too low. And we'll talk a bit later about that group as well as some of the other groups with different outlooks on the transition. But I just want to start with the paper and its findings. So what have you and your co-authors shown here? Well, so many conventional studies have measured the EROI of fossil fuels at the point of extraction. When I was doing my PhD, that's basically what we focused on was how much oil do we get out of the ground compared to how much we invest. But what we're realizing now is that that can lead to inflated values of the energy that is available to society. And really what we should be focusing on is the EROI at the point of use. When the fuels or the energy is actually consumed, 
And it actually shows that the EROI of renewables is actually considerably higher than that of fossil fuels. Huh. Yeah. So what we did was perform what's called like a meta-analysis. We actually didn't calculate any EROIs from raw data in this. It's a study of studies. We looked at studies that were out there and we, we gathered the data and then put it together. And we did this using an LCA perspective and we harmonized using the EcoInvent data. And the harmonization process is really interesting, I think, with EROI. We basically... And again, the whole point of harmonizing this is to make apples to apples comparisons. And in the LCA world, there's a whole bunch of of things they call study design parameters. The rules, if you will, of LCA state that like you can't make comparative assertions between two different life cycle analyses unless all of these study design parameters are the same. Hmm. Two of them that are the most important really for EROI are boundaries of analysis or product system boundaries and the functional unit. And those are the two that we kind of like focused on in our paper. So the functional unit is, I think, maybe a little bit clearer. So basically in the past, people have been comparing crude oil production, as I was saying before, to photovoltaics, to wind production. You fundamentally can't do that because the functional unit is different between all of those things. A photovoltaic panel, the unit of analysis there is generally one kilowatt hour of electricity into the grid. That's the functional unit. Mm -hmm. Whereas crude oil production at the wellhead is going to be one whatever unit of volume, one barrel of oil produced. Well, you have two fundamentally different products there and they can't be compared. So what we did in this analysis was separate those two out. We actually, in our results, don't even have them on the same graph. We have one that's electricity and one that's fuels. So we separate all of those out. And the second is boundary of analysis. And this is actually one that can be a little bit more difficult to discern in the literature because you really have to kind of like search through the papers to figure out where the boundary is. But if you think about extracting energy from nature and bringing it all the way to the point of consumption, there's a bunch of like steps that have to happen between those two things. You extract it, then you process it. I'm generalizing here because in our paper, we have to generalize these process stages across the technologies. But like you extract it, you can process it, you transport it at some point. For some of them, you refine them, you distribute them, and then they're at the point of use. Right. So what we wanted to do was take studies there in the literature that maybe were at the point of extraction, and then you can harmonize them and bring them to the point of use so that they all have the same function unit and the same boundary of analysis. And that's what we mean by harmonizing these. So that's kind of like what we did with our paper. Okay. So at the point of use then, that's the point at which we're analyzing and comparing things after the results of this paper. So what that means is we're talking about electricity, where it flows into an appliance, gasoline, where it's burned by a vehicle, natural gas, where it's burned in a power plant to create electricity. Yes. So the only addition I would make is that basically for a lot of the electricity producing technologies, we define the boundary of analysis as being electricity flowing into the grid system okay, as opposed to it coming out to an appliance because at that point, all the electricity producing technologies are mixed into the grid. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So at the point of generation, not at the point of consumption, not at the end of the distribution grid with all the associated losses from transmission and distribution systems and so on. That makes sense. Exactly. Okay. And so what did you find in the adjusted EROI values at the point of use for these different fuels? Well, we found that the EROI of fossil fuels is low and declining. Really, no liquid fuel products from conventional oil have an EROI above 10. 
The average estimate for the EROI of oil today is around 4.2. Bioethanol, biodiesel, and petrol from oil sands all have harmonized values below 5. And wind and solar, conversely, have EROIs above 10, which calculates, in other words, more than 90% of the energy produced by these technologies is delivered to society as net energy, which is really, and this is where I think our results are kind of challenging some of the other papers that are out there in the literature showing that fossil fuels are lower than a lot of the the renewable energy resources. Explain that a little more. How is it that because wind and solar have ROIs at or above 10, that more than 90% of the energy they produced is delivered to society as net energy? Sure. So there's a concept out there called the net energy cliff that I think is important. And it defines the relationship between energy return on investment and how much net energy is delivered to society. As I was saying before, EROI and net energy, you have the same variables defining them. One's a division and one's a subtraction. So if you rearrange those equations, you can actually plot EROI versus what we call the net to gross energy ratio. And and it's a nonlinear relationship. So this is hard to do, obviously, without visuals, but... <laughs> The the hell of podcasting, I know. <laughs> right. No, but it's okay. You could probably just Google net energy cliff and find one. But Yeah, there's lots of charts out there. Yeah, for sure. Basically, what it shows is that the graph is nonlinear, as I was saying. And basically, as EROI increases, the net energy delivered to society increases very rapidly in the beginning and then levels off at about 10 And then there's very much diminishing marginal returns above that. So let me explain what I mean. If you have a resource that has an EROI of 50 to 1, when you do the math, and you can look in the paper for the equations and just do the math for this, it's pretty simple, actually. A 50 to 1 resource will deliver 98% of the energy extracted as net energy. So that other 2%, in other words, is the one that is invested to get that 50 out. Does that make sense? Then If you go to 10 to 1, an EROI resource that's 10 to 1, 90% of that energy is delivered. If you go to 5 to 1, now we're down to 80%. And if you go to 2 to 1, we're down to 50% is delivered. So in other words, a 40-unit drop in EROI from 50 to 10 only decreases the net energy delivered to society by 8%. But if you drop it another 8 from 10 to 2, it declines from 90 to 50. So that's the precipitous drop-off there. And the way in which we try to interpret this, and all the figures in our paper have this dark line around 10, is basically that resources that provide an EROI of 10 or above generally provide a lot of net energy. And kind of like battling for a 20 to 1 versus a 30 to 1 resource is much less important. They're both delivering a lot of net energy. But below 10 is a different story. We have to be very careful about resources that are below 10 and certainly the resources that are below 5 because they are very costly and they do not deliver a lot of net energy. And that's kind of the takeaway there. So when we evaluate all these resources, we try to think of 10-ish as being, and there's a little bit of variability there or a little bit of uncertainty, but like around 10 as being the point at which a lot of net energy is delivered to society and that technology is worthy of investment. Hmm. So maybe another way of restating this would be if you have a fuel with an EROI of at least 10, it's delivering a substantial amount of its energy as net energy to society. And it doesn't really matter how much 
above 10 you go, you're going to get a marginal improvement in how much energy is delivered to society. Whereas below 10, you have serious questions and serious risk about whether or not it makes sense to run your society on this. And so based on the results that you've got here, where oil and other liquid fuels deliver essentially less than half of the net energy of solar and wind, what you're saying is if you want to have a society where it makes sense to keep investing in energy and it makes sense to power it in terms of economic growth potential, you kind of have to do it with renewables. You kind of have to do it with solar and wind, and you can't keep doing it with fossil fuels. That's right. That's a much more succinct way of saying it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's my privilege as curator to stand on the shoulders of people like you and just kind of do a little editing. So this is fascinating. I mean, this is basically flying straight in the face of the gazillion iterations of this argument that I've heard about how the EROI of renewables is too low. And some of the ways that I think they've made this argument is by larding up their analysis of renewables with storage, transmission, and other costs, which has the effect of making renewable generators act and look exactly like the conventional power plants, the thermal power plants they're replacing. And I have argued that this is an analytical error because that's not how the procurement of grid assets works. There's no regulatory requirement that every grid asset mimic the behavior of a conventional thermal generator and provide exactly the same services and attributes at the same time durations. That's just not how it works. After all, as we discussed in episode 153, some of those services, like mechanical inertia, aren't even necessary. And as the grid evolves more and more toward not just variable renewables, but to all sorts of other assets, from utility-scale renewable and storage systems to customer-owned assets like rooftop solar or customer-owned battery systems and electric vehicles, and then, of course, all the other demand-side resources. The grid operator's task is absolutely not to try to make every asset on the grid behave exactly like the old power plants being replaced but rather to orchestrate all the available assets to do whatever they can do, whenever they can do it, as long as in the end, the grid provides reliable power at preferably the lowest cost and the lowest emissions. So the cost of system properties, like reliability and balancing, are allocated across the whole system. And incidentally, that's exactly how all the old grid costs were allocated as well. This is how it's always been done. It makes no sense, in other words, to insist that the cost should be allocated to individual generators. System properties like reliability and resilience are system costs. They do not get assigned to individual generators. So anyone who claims otherwise simply doesn't understand how the grid is procured and managed and how it's evolving. And they should probably listen to episode 174 and see how the grid operator in the UK is actually evolving its grid to go in this direction. But that's my way of addressing that point. How do you address it? So this actually has been a really big issue in the literature and one that we've been kind of discussing for a a few years now. And listen, it's true that integrating more renewable technologies into the electricity grid will have to be accompanied by more electrical storage to compensate for intrinsic variability of renewable energy and to, you know, of course, ensure uh, real-time matching of supply and demand curves and all of that. There have been, however, detailed scenario analyses of net energy performance of highly decarbonized grid mixes, ones that are reliant heavily on PVs, using high temporal resolution and algorithms 
they all indicate that like the additional energy investment for electrochemical storage or battery systems does not really significantly over affect the overall energy return on investment of the grid mix. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The market clearly knows that solar demand is going nowhere but up. According to a research report from Planetary Technologies, quote, the sun has won. The exponential growth of solar installations that has been underway for more than 25 years is likely to continue, they say, if not accelerate. In 2021, more money was invested in renewables than fossil fuel projects, more solar was built than any other type of generating capacity, and solar enjoyed a cost of capital about one quarter of that for fossil fuel projects. Solar is now the most capital-efficient way to generate power after large-scale wind, making it a better, lower-risk investment than new fossil-fueled electricity projects. And although fossil-fueled power plants may still get built for various reasons, by around 2025, building new solar power and battery storage plants is expected to be cheaper than just the running costs of fossil-fueled power plants. And countries who invest in solar will enjoy a real competitive advantage for having low-cost power. The authors expect solar power to dominate global electricity production for at least the next three decades. And for those who doubt that the global manufacturing capacity to produce that much solar equipment can even be built, it already is. According to recent research from Yali Jiang of Bloomberg NEF and reported by Bloomberg's David Fickling, solar installations are still growing at rates over 30% per year. The global existing and planned manufacturing capacity for solar polysilicon, the material from which solar PV cells are made, will amount to about 2.5 million metric tons by 2025. That's sufficient to build 940 gigawatts of solar panels every year, or roughly as much solar as exists in the world in total today. Put another way, that's almost four times as much capacity as the roughly 250 gigawatts of solar expected to be deployed in 2022. Or for another way of looking at it, 940 gigawatts of solar generating at a 20% capacity factor would generate enough power to meet 5.8% of the world's current electricity demand. 
For a final bit of perspective, it would be equivalent to adding every 20 months, as much generation as the world's entire fleet of nuclear power plants produces annually. And that 940 gigawatts is well in excess of the 630 gigawatts of annual solar installations that the IEA reckons would be needed to put the world on track to net zero emissions. In fact, the growth in polysilicon production capacity is set to far outpace the rate of installations, with more than $20 billion of new investment in factories, mostly located in China, already planned. So the world's ability to produce enough solar equipment is not in doubt. But that doesn't mean that the world will actually be installing 940 gigawatts of solar per year by 2025. Permitting hurdles, trade hurdles, and tariffs, and regulatory roadblocks are expected to limit actual solar installations to a considerably lower level. Those are complex and nuanced issues that only people actively working in the industry understand very well. So I would expect transition deniers to instead continue repeating vague worries about rare earth metals and anything else that fits with their narratives. Item 2. Utility-scale electricity storage is taking on some interesting new forms. Construction has commenced on Japan's largest combined offshore wind and power storage facility, the 112-megawatt Ishikari Offshore Wind Project. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.